Well, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll look at uh, directives for spiritual vitality. Father, we are grateful that in your word we find a wonderful treasure. Uh, Not just that, Lord, but we find all that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we find strength and help and instruction so that we can keep our ministries going strong and our souls healthy and cared for. And Lord, our prayer as we gather together this morning is that you would use your word in this hour uh, to really to remind us of what we need to be doing to have a long-term ministry and also how to help those in our paths who come to us in spiritual valleys and in weakness. So Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts of compassion and mercy. Help me, Lord, as I lead this time in your word. May we all marvel at your word and its sufficiency as a result of our discussion. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you. Uh, It's good to see some familiar faces. And at least one of you have heard most of what I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, Poor Courtney Piper. Uh, She is a member at my church, our church. And I did a sermon series uh, back in January on directives for spiritual vitality. And it was five weeks uh, so what I've tried to do is Mission Impossible, really. Try to squeeze all of this into one lecture and sort of make it into less about church and less about general ministry and more specifically about how we as biblical counselors and, and, and those who are trying to be faithful ministers of the Word, how can we really care for our souls and set ourselves up for a long-term ministry? And on top of that, how do we come out of spiritual valleys ourselves. I mean, no matter how mature you are, no matter how godly you are, no matter how far along in the race you are, you are going to have times when you feel um, as dry as West Texas. You're going to feel like you're in a valley. You're going to feel like the struggle is real, that someone else ought to be in this counseling room doing this work. I could tell you, I mean, that happens to me. I you know, you sit down, the case is what it is, and you're like, oh, Lord, someone else needs to be here doing this. But in that moment, your number is called, and you're the person. And so how do we overcome that kind of spiritual discouragement? And I call that spiritual weakness. It's like timidity. It's fear. It's kind of a fear of man. It's a fear of inadequacy. Um, it's a fear we all experience. And when I say spiritual weakness in this lecture, what I, I don't mean is the kind of weakness wherein God proves his strength. That's the good weakness. But I'm talking about weakness where I feel like I'm just going to pull the cover over my head and I'm staying in bed for this one. Or I'm going to call Pastor Terry to deal with this one. Or, you know, some other guy to handle this thing. All right, this is a real struggle for us. So how do we serve... When we feel dry, how do we come out of spiritual weakness? How do we restore our spiritual vitality? And how do we serve the Lord in such a way that we can have a long-term ministry? Those are all the sort of questions that I want us to answer. And actually, they're questions that this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, answers for us in a way that is so helpful and so clear. And our focus is going to be on verses 1 to 7. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you're not there, go ahead and turn there, because this is going to be something like a Bible study together. And what I hope is that you'll be able to take this passage and just sort of stick it in your back pocket, right? When when the time comes, when you're feeling this way, when you're thinking these thoughts, or even you have a counselee who comes to you, or a a fellow laborer for the gospel, co-laborer, they come to you in these the pits, you know, down. You can say, look, I, I get it. I've been there, I've walked that way. Turn to, to 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. to Let's just walk through this passage together and see what the Lord might have to say to us. Okay, so that's my hope. I want to give you a little bit of context to set up this passage uh, for you. You understand the Apostle Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a young man at this point, probably in his mid-30s, who had been given a very difficult pastoral assignment. Now, what do we know about the church in Ephesus where Timothy was? You guys, let's jog our memories from our Bible introduction or Bible survey stuff. What do we know about this church? It was around the Temple of Artemis, meaning that some of the folks there, probably most of the core membership, 
would have had some past before they were Christians connected to this kind of temple. Ephesus was a really terrible place. I mean, it was in in all the moral senses. It was worse even than our current climate. Right, So you read about it, it's almost, I mean, you, you have to be careful when you read about Ephesus, some of the images that come up. So it's just a terrible place. Also, we know in Ephesus um, that the men had been fighting with each other because Paul says men uh, ought not to quarrel and fight, but they're to lift up holy hands and pray. Right, Pray for all these people. The men were fighting, and somewhere along the way, as the men were fighting each other, the women, as you dear women often do, you look at us and you think, boy, someone's got to do something. And the women stepped up and said, if these guys are going to fight, uh, we're going to step up and lead. And what happened is the women got in the pulpit, basically, and started leading the church while the men were fighting. And also on top of that, there was a group within the church itself. Well, they were teaching false doctrine. Paul called this strange, strange doctrines. So you've got a pretty ugly recipe of what's going on in this church. And this is a church that I wouldn't want to go pastor. Actually, probably most of the churches in the New Testament were not churches that you're going to have a long line of people coming up and saying, let me take that job. Uh, But this was one where Timothy had been assigned. Paul had commissioned Timothy to stay in Ephesus to rebuke false teachers. Now just think about that. These people have influence. They have a hearing. Large numbers in the church are are hanging on their every word. They think they're great. And Paul said, Timothy, I want you to go rebuke them. Timothy's naturally timid, right? Probably like most of you. There are few of us who enjoy, you know, sticking it to the man, going and standing up and taking one on the chin. We we don't like that. Most people don't want conflict. So the, uh, Paul, rather, had commissioned Timothy to go to Ephesus, or stay in Ephesus, rebuke these false teachers, get these angry men under control. There's a task for you. And then get the women back to the work that God had called them to do. There's another task for you. Right? You're pulling people down from a powerful position that they shouldn't have been in the first place. You're trying to get the men set straight, rebuking false teachers. And then on top of that, 1 Timothy 3, he's called to put qualified men in the place of leadership. So this is a church revitalization project that's something like a nightmare. And so this, of course, is no easy task. And somewhere along the way, as Timothy is in the middle of it, right, he's in the trenches. He's working hard. He's laboring. And somewhere along the way, Timothy begins to weaken spiritually. I mean, it's not surprising, right? It's You can understand the toll. You can look at... 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, 7, 8, verses 13 to 14, chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 3. All of these are sections where there's a suggestion from Paul that Timothy is weakening, right? His little spiritual candle is flickering. And you know that, you felt that, right, in ministry. And here Paul, or here Timothy is filling his, his little spiritual flame, which at one point was a massive, powerful light is now flickering. And on top of all that, the Apostle Paul looks, not only is this a bad church situation, not only is my man that's supposed to be there getting everything in order, you know, not only is he sort of floundering, but I'm about to die. Right? The Apostle Paul is about to go. What's going to happen if Timothy checks out And the women continue pastoring the church, and the men keep fighting and going on. Well, Paul understands that this is, of course, his last letter, at least inspired letter, that we have. And Paul understands that Timothy needs to be whipped back into shape. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, Paul zeroes in on the issue of spiritual strength. Here we are, Timothy. Here, Here is what I need you to do. He sort of triaged the situation. You're struggling. You're down. All right. This is what you need to do. Here are some directives. Four. Four commands for you to get back on your feet, back in the saddle, and do the work that God has called you to do. 
Okay? Essentially, these four commands are like a recipe for spiritual health. Uh, They will keep you from declining spiritually. So they will help you fan into flame your spiritual candle. And they'll also fill you with strength to carry out the assignment that God has given you. So if you take these and do them, you'll find your spiritual strength renewed. Okay? So I've summarized these four commands into four points that you have in your outline. And I apologize that that outline is so sparse. Your notes are sparse. uh, But it was all I could do to get these five sermons into one lecture. My wife tells me, don't make excuses when you're teaching, when you're preaching. Don't make excuses. Just do it. So that was my excuse. Don't tell my wife, please. (laughs) All right, let's get in. Directive number one. And my PowerPoint is off because I've been editing this all week. So uh, I'm not going to use the PowerPoint. Directive number one. Paul says, be strengthened by grace. Amazing, amazing, amazing passage. Verse one. You therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You're weak. It's time to get strong. And the way you do that is by strengthening yourself in the grace that is in Christ. This is really, of course, the overarching admonition or uh, command to Timothy. And it reminds us that Timothy's weakness here was not acceptable. And Paul doesn't just say, oh, that's okay. That's okay, Timothy. The struggle is real. It's hard. Life is tough. Let's just pray that the Lord will take care of you. No. He comes to him and says, my son. That's that's what he says. Verse 1, you therefore my son. Tender, compassionate, but it's not weak. And it's, it's not a, let's just cover this and let's just move on. We'll get someone else to do it. No, you therefore, my son, you've got to do something. Your spiritual weakness is not acceptable. It's time for you to get up and it's time for you to get back in the saddle. Timothy, if he flounders here, the church strikes a reef and is in destruction. So Timothy has a part to play, and the part he's playing is so important that he can no longer just waffle around. It's time for him to get up and get to work. And the command here is also passive in Greek, meaning that the source of Timothy's spiritual strength is not to be found in himself. So Paul is not saying something like, you know, pick yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps here. That's not what he's saying, which is kind of what we want to say when we hear... You know, it's time, your weakness is unacceptable, let's get with it. That's not what Paul's doing. He's pushing him, but he's doing it in a way that's gracious, kind, and also is pointing him to the only place from which he can draw appropriate strength. It's kind of like directing a man who is weak from lack of thirst saying, look, you're right here at the well. You've been complaining that you're so parched and you're so tired and you're so thirsty. And you you should be. It's a desert place. Now, what you have to do, Timothy, is you have to get up and go to this well and get some water. That's what you have to do. You are to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus And no doubt Paul probably scooped up some water for him, gave him some of it. That's true. That's, that's appropriate. But if Timothy is going to persevere, he's got to learn that he can't just be drawing his strength from the inside, his own spiritual well, as it were. He's got to go to the well of God's grace to draw the strength that he needs every day. Now, of course, the implication here in this imperative be strong in the grace that is in Christ, is that Timothy at some point, as he's fighting all these battles, at some point, Timothy had failed to draw his strength from the well of God's grace. Now let me ask you, if he wasn't drawing his strength from the grace that is in Christ, where might he be drawing his strength from? There are only two options. 
right? And sometimes, you know this, I know this, life is so busy, the needs are so great, the harvest is so plentiful, and you can get yourself in this mentality when you're just working and working and working and working and working. And you you look up and it's been all day and you haven't prayed since your morning prayer. This is common. And here, Timothy has probably done this for some time. And the consequence, of course, is that now he has begun to decline spiritually and he's parched and he is in trouble. And the spiritual principle here, of course, is that when you fail to draw your strength from the well of God's grace, you will inevitably begin to look inward. It's our default. Right? And you'll try to muster up the strength and courage and competence you need for the ministry God has given you to do. The consequence of that inward turn will always be your own spiritual demise. This is where that statement, I just, I just can't do it. I'm just, someone else needs to be here. Right? What are you looking at? You're looking at your own skills, your own training, your own ability, and you're saying, in light of all that I know that I am, I'm, I should not be here. You're looking to draw your strength from your own well. Right, that always ends in destruction. And of course, the reason for that is because you don't have within yourself what it takes to do the work. You never have. You might have been deceived to think you had it. And that's where seminary degrees, wonderful biblical counseling training, right, these can sort of falsely entice you to draw on the well of your own strength. But you're not ready to counsel because now you've done biblical counseling training. Now you're in track three. Oh, you guys are the elite. right? You've got it. Now you're not ready because of that. Now you should be training. We, of course, this is what we're about, to train you guys to, to be faithful ministers of the word in the counseling room and in the discipling relationship. But you're not ready to counsel or disciple because you've been here. Right? You're sharpened. Your skills are sharpened. But you had, if you had the Holy Spirit and that word of God, you had all you needed to do the work. We just want to sort of sharpen you to get you there. But what happens is you lose sight of that in the process and you start thinking, oh, I'm ready because I've got all this training. I've got my certification. I've got X, Y, and Z. I'm ready to do it. And you go out, you start working in your own strength, and all of a sudden it doesn't take time before you're Timothy in Ephesus. Okay? Of course, our Lord told us not to do that. John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do just some stuff. Yeah, nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. What makes us think that we can do something without him? It's pride. Right, we just, we love that verse. But we also hate it at the same time, don't we? And because we want to be able to do something. We want to be able to contribute something. But the Lord says, no, you won't without me. And if you try to do something without Jesus, God will lovingly help you to sense your own inability. Right? You are not designed to carry out your ministry in the strength of your own flesh. You were designed, and so was I, so this is for me as well. You're designed to do the work God's given you to do by the strength that God's grace supplies. Okay? I told you I'm on a time crunch here. This is over at 11.15. Okay, we're in good shape. So why, why then grace? Actually, let me ask it a different way. Paul was telling Timothy, get up and go to grace. Right? Go to the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What do we see when we consider the grace of God in Christ? You tell me. What do you see when you get up, you stop looking at yourself, your own weakness, your own inability, and you start looking at Jesus' grace? What do you see there? What are some things you see when you can contemplate the grace of our Lord? Hope. Hope. Infinite hope. Love. Love in spite of 
us. In spite of my own weaknesses, in spite of my own incompetency. Right? The thing you think that keeps you from being able to do it is actually the thing that evoked and provoked the Lord to come to you in the first place. What else? Love, hope, endurance. endurance. Why? In what way? What do you mean by that? Well, keep on keeping on. Yeah. Really, you're, you're questioning your ability to keep continuing, and he gives you that endurance to... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Keep pressing on. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. The heavy lifting is over. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. His spirit. His spirit is in us. That's great. Same spirit who rose our Lord from the dead. Why would you moan about your own weakness? When our Lord was in the tomb, he was able to be risen. Can the Lord do something with your little feeble effort? Yes, he can. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, that's First Corinthians 3, right? First Corinthians 1. That's my passage. 1 or 3 or 10 or 15, somewhere in there. Yeah, that's right. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Right? The myth is that God, you think God needs you to be, you know, in the major leagues. Uh, if he's going to use you mightily. <laughs> no. No, God's delight and design is to use weak, feeble people like you and me to do wonderful things so that at the end of the day, everyone is able to look at us and say, nope, it was definitely not him. God was working through him. Right? And I love, brother, what you said, that the work is finished. When we see grace, we think about grace, the heavy lifting of it all is finished. The real work is done. And what that does when we consider that is it's, you know, we're talking about justification, right? We're talking about our salvation. That work is done. When we consider that and realize that and we're drawing strength from that all the time, what that does is it sets us free to really serve the Lord. Because we're no longer basing our justification or our standing before God on our merit or on, you know, we're not thinking we're justified by our counseling abilities. We understand that's by faith alone and Christ has accomplished it. Now I have the freedom to go out there, work hard, give all I've got feebly for the Lord, best I can do, and and trust and rest in the fact that I am his and his smile is still on me, even though I'm sort of fumbling around, right? That gives you energy. I don't think there's a sermon that I preach. This really is true. When I walk down, I'm the pastor at Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth, and I preach every Sunday. And there's not a sermon that I preach that I don't come down those steps, go to my pew, put my Bible down, start to sing, and I don't think, praise God, that I'm not justified by that sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Praise God. right? My justification is not hinging on my performance. And so when we go to the well of God's grace, it sort of gets us off the hamster wheel of performance. Right, where we're we're no we're no longer thinking that God is upset with me if I I'm sort of blew a counseling session. You're going to do it. It's going to happen. Or if I if I didn't have all the right words. Look, you're going to do it. It's going to happen. We believe the power is in the Word of God in His Spirit, not in your creativity or my creativity. Right? That's what we believe. So these moments are times where we can reorient ourselves on what's true. Um, okay. So, Timothy, then, if you're going to recover here, the first thing Paul instructs him to do is that he has to get himself back onto the reality of God's grace. He's not to try and power through and strengthen himself by his own willpower or competency. He has got to get up and go draw strength from the well of God's grace. And we have to do the same thing over and over and over again. Okay? That's the first directive. Second directive is in verse 2. And I'm just generalizing that as prioritize obedience. And I think that will make sense as I explain. Paul writes, verse 2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now that is fundamental responsibilities, right? Let me ask you. 
what is Timothy in Ephesus? What's his role in, in Ephesus? He's a pra- pastor. Okay. So what in that command would have been new to Timothy? I mean, this is this is why actually some liberal scholars look at this and say, look, this couldn't have been written by Paul, right? Because Timothy doesn't need to hear Paul's basic job description of what a pastor is here. What they miss, though, is the point I want to make, is that oftentimes when you start to grow spiritually weak, the first thing to go is your bottom line fundamental responsibilities, Right, you start shirking on the very base things you're supposed to be doing. And why do we do that? When we feel down, why do we throw off our basic job descriptions usually? It's because we don't feel like it. Uh, you know, the, the dad doesn't feel like loving the wife or taking care of the kids or being part of the training process at home. So he comes home, he, does, he feels tired, he's been working all day. So he just... He goes, turns on Sports Center, and he sits there and expects everyone to serve him. He's been working all day long. The wife doesn't feel like keeping the home anymore. I've been with these little pagans all day long. <laughs> You've been at work with people talking, you know, real adult conversations. Give me the keys. I'm going to go. You got home. You watch the kids. I'm going to go talk with my friends. Laundry gets backed up, dishes, all that stuff. We don't feel like doing what we know we ought to be doing, and so we don't do it. Now, what's the, the fundamental problem there is that who is Lord in that moment? Yourself. You yourself. You, you are your Lord. You're the Lord of your own life. I don't feel like it, so I just don't do it. And you can say another way, really, your feelings are the Lord at that moment. You're sort of led around by however you feel in that moment. This is a dangerous place to be. It's highs, you know, high highs and low lows. And you get in that sort of routine and it's, it's miserable. Well, when we start to weaken spiritually, sometimes we lose focus. We lose focus of who's in charge. We don't feel like doing something, so we neglect it. Feelings become authoritative. And if you're not careful, you can spiral at this moment. You spiral down and down and down because your feelings are perpetually going to lead you downward. And you get to the point where someone has to come along and, and give you your basic job description, like Paul's doing here with Timothy. It's kind of like saying, look, you're a police officer. You need to be catching bad guys. You're a fireman. Let me show you how to use this fire hose, okay? Basic. Timothy should know this, but he's neglected it. Now, Paul essentially is saying here to Timothy, look, here's what you ought to be doing. It's what you should have been doing. It's what you've got to be doing now. It's what you've got to be doing in the future. Now, I love you, brother. But I don't care how you feel in this moment, right? The Lord is calling you to do this, whether you feel like it or not. Now, someone may say, well, isn't that hypocritical? Right? Isn't Paul sort of leading Timothy into hypocrisy here? Is it hypocritical? What do you think? No, that's not hypocritical. That's not even what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is play acting, it's deceit. It's not hypocrisy. Right? If that were hypocrisy, then I would be a hypocrite before you right now, and you would be a hypocrite probably for being here because you probably, if you're like me, didn't feel like getting out of bed this morning. Maybe some of you did, but I do not every day. It's so hard for me to get up. Um, but you do it. Why do you do it? You've got to. You've got responsibilities. You've got one life. It'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You've got one day to do it. You, know, you may be gone tomorrow. So you've got to get out of bed, even if you don't feel like it. You, you do what you have to do. And that doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you faithful. right? It makes you reliable. Now, what would be a hypocrite is if I came before you and said, Whew, mornings are my favorite time of the day. Boy, I love getting out of bed. You know, It's just wonderful. That would be hypocrisy, and my wife and my children would be able to tell you that's not true. Although they are definitely asleep when I wake up in the morning. But um, yeah, hypocrisy is putting on a show. It's giving an outward show of 
you're purporting this outward show to be the reality on the inside. And that's not what's happening here. Uh, it's never hypocrisy when you do what you know you need to do regardless of how you feel about it. That is faithfulness. Okay? And we're going to have to teach counselees that over and over again. You have to teach yourself that over and over again, which makes us great counselors. Right? The best counselors are the ones who know how to counsel themselves the best. And the more you are able to figure out ways to overcome your own feelings and teach your counselees, look, this is what I do. I know it's hard, but look, this is what God's Word says, so I do it. The more you're able to do that with your own life, you'll be able to help counselees overcome their feelings and honor the Lord and do what's right regardless of how they feel. Now, feelings are wonderful and they are part of what it is to be in God's image, but feelings are followers. Right, feelings have to follow what? Truth. Feelings have to follow truth. If you just think about this, God never calls us to renew our feelings. That I know of. But he does call us, at least two places, to renew our what? Our minds. Thinking. Right? Thinking. Truth. What has God commanded me? That's what has to lead me. Not my feelings. But when you start to decline spiritually, it's, it's inevitable. Probably either causation or correlation, who knows, but you're going to start to be led by your feelings. And that's just not God's design. So part of the way up you spin out of that is by saying, okay, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it. What has God called me to do? And I'm going to do that thing. Here, 2 Timothy 2.2, I don't feel like meeting with people today, but I have been entrusted with the gospel of Christ, the word of God, greatest treasure. I don't feel like giving it to anyone today, but I'm going to do it because this is what God calls me to do. And that will keep you from calling your counselee and <clears throat> I don't feel good today. Sorry, I had to counsel, right? Or your discipling. Do it, whether you feel like it or not, and your feelings will follow. Okay, so you want to be spiritually strong, sustain vitality, come out of spiritual weakness. Number one, strengthen yourself on the grace of God. Number two, prioritize obedience above feeling. And then third, the third directive here, is have the right expectations. That's verses three to six. And again, I think that'll make sense to you as we kind of work through here. Right, the command for us in this third directive is in verse 3, where Paul writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Suffer hardship. That's the command, actually. Suffer hardship with me is the command. And Paul is suffering hardship. Timothy is suffering hardship. Uh, but for some reason, it seems as if Timothy is moaning under his hardship, and the Apostle Paul is glorying in his. Isn't that amazing? Uh, two people suffering, struggling, having difficulties, and experiencing the same thing, although Paul's was worse, probably. It's hard to think of it being worse than Paul's, right? But two people experiencing the same sort of similar sufferings, but two very different Responses. Paul's weakness was his strength. Somehow it launched him into greater confidence in the Lord. Timothy's was leading him to mope and be discouraged. No, I don't want to beat up Timothy. We're not told he moped. Okay, so that's I'm taking a little bit of liberty there. But I, I can imagine the discouragement that Timothy would be feeling. And so Paul comes and says, look, suffer hardship with me. That's another way of saying, brother, I'm right there with you. You're not the exception to the rule here. Look at these brother pastors over here. They're in difficult spots. Look at these Christians over here. They're in difficult spots. Look at me. Right? You could, and actually, Paul delineates that, but Timothy himself would have been very familiar with Paul's suffering. Not only that, not only because he accompanied Paul along the way, but Timothy's hometown was in Lystra. And that's where 
Paul and likely Timothy would have been there when the Apostle Paul was stoned and beaten and drugged out of the city and left for dead, maybe even stripped of clothing, humiliated. And at that point is when Timothy really got on board with Paul. So the question is, Timothy, what were you thinking was going to come your way when you started following the Lord? Remember, I told you the situation in Ephesus. What were you thinking it was going to be like? Maybe if he's like you or me, he was thinking, yeah, I'll come in and I'll get it fixed up. I'll come in, we can get these people in line. He's, you know, he's got, he's motivated, encouraged. And all of a sudden he hits a wall. And it's a lot harder than he expected. And maybe he, he if he's like us, he, he thought he would be the exception. We always do that. I say we always do that. We shouldn't say always. I tend to do that 99% of the time. So I have to constantly be working on my own heart. I am not the exception. It's not that everyone else has to suffer, but Timothy gets the free pass. Everyone else has to suffer in ministry, and everyone else has to deal with difficult counselees and difficult disciplees. But I will have a smooth pathway. If that's your expectation, you're going to find yourself in a lot of trouble in ministry. And you won't endure for the long haul. So what Paul does here is really amazing. He gives Timothy three analogies to get his expectations recalibrated, right? Reset them. Uh, Because he's thinking probably that he's the exception. He's thinking that he doesn't maybe have to suffer or it's extraordinary. Maybe his case is unique. It's uniquely difficult. We know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that's not the case. But we tend to do that. And so Paul says, okay, Timothy, look, here, let me give you three analogies here. This is how you've got to start thinking about yourself. I don't know how you're thinking about yourself right now. You're weak. You're sort of trembling. You're timid. You're struggling. But look, this is the way you've got to start conceiving of your life. And I would say this is true every one of you, myself included. The first analogy is verse 4. And it's the analogy of a soldier. Right, if Timothy is going to be faithful in his service to the Lord, then he is going to have to start thinking of himself as a soldier. Now, is that how you think about yourself in ministry? A soldier, verse 4, in active duty. It says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So you've got your disciplees, potentially counselees, you go to work, whatever, you're, whatever it is the Lord has called you to do, are you conceiving of yourself as a soldier in the Lord's army in active duty? Now, some of you have family members, husbands, wives who are in the military. You know what that's like. Sacrifice, pain, challenges, difficulties, hardships, we were just at a retirement ceremony for a friend of ours in our church. He's retiring from the Marines. And it just struck me. Uh, they detailed sort of the sacrifices that it went through as a family. He's got, I think, seven kids. Um, their family walked through all of this. And he got up and did a wonderful job of detailing the Lord's faithfulness in front of all of these Marines and Air Force guys. And just did a, such a great job. And I thought, as he was talking, I thought, Wow. I know so little of sacrifice. Here's a man who, to serve his country, has sacrificed tremendously. And his wife, his kids, gone for years, months at a time. And I get to come home, and I complain when I'm not home, you know, four nights out of the week. Come on. Come on, Timothy. (laughs) Get it together. Right? You are a soldier in the Lord's army. Let me give you a couple of lessons I think we can draw from this and i think they're from this passage lesson number one like the soldier the christian let me put it this way like the soldier the christian's life and ministry will inevitably be marked by challenges and difficulties of course we saw that in verse three timothy is to endure hardship as a good soldier of christ we're talking about war this is war Christian is engaged in war with the devil, Ephesians 6, with the world and its system that's hostile to God and God's people. 
and we're at war in our own flesh. All the external hostile enemies always find a landing ground in our wicked heart. Not always, but often. In his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, William Gurnall captured it this way. He said, Indeed, there is no duty in a Christian's whole course of walking with God or acting for God, but is lined with many difficulties, which these difficulties shoot like enemies through the hedges at him while he is marching towards heaven, so that he is put to dispute every inch of ground as he goes. Now there's a vision of Christian life and ministry. It's war. There are enemies in the hedges shooting at you as you go to do the work of ministry. So much so that every inch of ground, says Gurnall, has to be disputed. Now, is that your expectation? I'll tell you, I wrote this lecture and I have to fight every moment of every day for that to be the way I live. That's my aspiration for sure. But boy, is it not natural to me. When I get one arrow in the leg, I'm like, why in the world is my life falling apart all of a sudden, you know? Got a flat tire today. What in the world is happening? My life has fallen apart. We, we live with a vacation mentality. That's what we do. Right, we want life to be smooth and easy. No problems. Kids well-behaved. House bigger than I need. Paid for cash. <laughs> Council leaves who are basically changed themselves. You know, they're no, they don't need help. <laughs> Disciple leaves who are, you know, singing my praises and telling everybody how wonderful the work I do is. And that's what we want. We want a vacation. We live with a vacation mentality. And Paul's saying, no, look, Timothy, you live with a vacation mentality, you're still going to be down there in the dumps. You've got to change your thinking. You are a soldier in active duty for the Lord. So don't be surprised that the enemy is shooting at you. This is life. What did you think when you enlisted? Right? You're being sent off to fight a battle. Well, I'm good as long as no one shoots at me. Wait, 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 wait. All right, this is totally misguided. So you have to live... As a soldier in active duty, understanding that your life will be marked by challenges and difficulties. Change is hard. People are tough. Ministry is hard. And I'm operating off of an Ephesians 4.11 view of ministry. So the pastor's job is to train his people to do the work of ministry. So I'm calling you ministers, servants of the word. All right? Your pastor's job is to train you to do the work. We're just helping your church. We're just helping your pastor. That's what CBCD is about so that you can serve your church. All right, lesson number two. Like the soldier, the Christian needs a very narrow focus. That's what we see in verse four. Paul says, no soldier in active service entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life. If you're in active military service, you cannot be distracted and pulled around by all the affairs of civilian life. That would be anything that would pull you away from the mission that God has given you to do. Now, this is in no way saying you sacrifice your family for the sake of ministry. Your family is a ministry. It's your key ministry. What is a profit of man if he gains wonderful you know, ministry influences and all that, but he loses his family? Well, if he loses his family, he loses his pulpit. Right? You lose your family. Those are your primary disciples. Right? Your children, you moms. I mean, I, I tell my wife this, and I mean, she's the greatest influence on our children. I mean, she is the primary disciple. I mean, I am the primary guy on the books. But man, does she have powerful influence over our children. Right? So, uh, we can't, as we're ministering to our children, to our families, we can't get pulled off of, you know, to civilian affairs and think that life is really about baseball or life is really about entertainment or life is really about this or this. We have a Deuteronomy 6, 
assignment, right? Ephesians 6. We have, we have assignments from the Lord to train our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So zero, narrow, laser focus on the mission is what's required of us. That'll help us kind of like Christian navigate Vanity Fair. Right? We can put our head down, stay focused on the task and not make shipwreck of our souls or the souls of those people entrusted to our care. Third, like the soldier, the Christian's objective is to please the one who enlisted him. That's the end of verse 4. We are to please the one who enlisted him. That's just interesting phraseology to me. Not please the general. He could say that, but he doesn't say that. Well, how does he put it? Please the one who enlisted him. That itself is like an injection of hope. Now let me tell you one. The objective is to please the one who enlisted you, Timothy. Timothy, you're fighting, you're laboring, you're down. Think like a soldier. And that means your objective is to please the one who enlisted you. So who enlisted Timothy for the work? God. It may seem like Paul did, but no, 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 no. Paul himself says that he was enlisted in 1 Timothy 1 from the Lord. He appointed me. He judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Amazing phraseology. The Lord Jesus looked at Paul and said, he's reliable. I'm going to now take him and appoint him to this service. And Paul is saying, look, Timothy, the Lord Jesus enlisted you into his army. Your objective is not to please me, but to please the one who enlisted you. He's the one you are to live for. Now, do you think the one who enlisted you as a soldier and his army is pleased when you're moaning about the difficulty of life in the trenches. No, he enlisted you and appointed you this for this purpose. So we live as those who are in active duty service for the Lord. We live to please him. We live knowing that life will be hard and challenging. But we also know the hope of it all is that we we're appointed for the service that God has given us to do by His hand. This is His doing. Yes, He could have appointed someone different to be in that chair, doing the counseling. He could have. But has He done it? No. My friend, you are all He's got right now. <laughs> You've got to do it. You're on the machine gun. You've got to take care of business. You have been appointed by His hand for this moment to carry out the work. No one else is going to train your children. No one else is going to give this guy biblical wisdom, this gal biblical wisdom. That's on you in this moment. And you need to please the Father, please the one who enlisted you. All right? Does that make sense? Okay. We've got to move along. Time, time, time. It goes quickly. All right. Analogy number two. First analogy is that of a soldier. Let me just say one more thing about that. That also will cure us from this sort of horizontal jealousy that often happens in churches. I'm upset that she got that position when I really wanted it. He got that position when I really wanted it. Now I'm going to leave because I'm upset and I'm going to go do my own thing. Who's in charge ultimately? God. Right? He is the captain. He is the general. The general has the prerogative to put his soldiers wherever in the world he wants them at any point in time. Your job is not to be the general. Neither is mine. My job is not to be in the, in the room counseling saying, General, you've made a bad move here putting me in this room. Right, that's not my job. My job is to trust that probably the general sees the battlefield far more than I do and far more aptly than I do. And I just need to trust. And in this moment, he's got a feeble man doing this work where there are a hundred other candidates who could do it better. But I'm the one he's put here. And I've got to trust that he is wiser and he's up to something. And I've just got to trust him for it. And I'm not going to be jealous about the other guy, what he got. Because that's in the Lord's hands, not mine. He's the general, not me. I don't get to tell him what to do. Right? We just bow to his sovereignty. It's a wonderful place to be. Right? Okay, that's enough. Number two. Analogy number two. Verse five. So not only do we conceive ourselves as soldiers, but we also should think of ourselves as athletes. 
Look at verse 5. Also, if any anyone rather competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Uh, this, of course, was Paul's favorite metaphor, the metaphor of an athlete. We know there were a number of games, like the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games. These were popular games. And Paul obviously was a fan. So he used these analogies to teach us really how we ought to conceive of our lives. If you wanted to compete in any of these games, like the Isthmian Games or the Olympic Games, you had to train year-round. Actually, you had to train for at least 10 months leading up to the games. Most of the people, though, that did it were professional athletes, NFL, major leagues, whatever. These guys were serious. And their entire lives orbited around this athletic event. So think Olympic-level athlete. How do they eat? How do they sleep? How do they spend their time? Everything orbits around the sport. This is how Timothy must conceive of himself. He is an Olympic-level athlete competing at the highest level. Now, what that requires of him is training, dedication, skill. That doesn't mean that he's going to get the gold today. But it does mean he needs to think about himself along those lines. His conception of himself needs to be, look, I am not just a civilian navigating the world on vacation. I'm also not just an average guy just working a job and coming home. I am an Olympic-level athlete for the Lord. And my life revolves around whatever He wants me to do. And the assignment He's given me, the, the event, as it were, that He's given me is to be a minister of His Word, to train men and women how to obey all that Christ has commanded. Great commission. That's my job. Now, if I'm going to do that at the highest level... That requires that I be disciplined, that I train myself, First Timothy 4, 7, for the purpose of godliness. The word there, First Timothy 4, 7, is gumnazo, which means exercise vigorously. It has the idea of training to the point of wearing yourself out. Now, could it be, Timothy? Could it be? Counselor, discipler, mom, dad, grandpa. Could it be that you're so wearied in your ministry and your service to others because you have neglected the fundamental training and the fundamental means of God's grace? You neglect the ordinary means of grace. These are the means, Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, church. Those are the normal ways that you exercise yourself to equip yourself for the event right, of preaching, teaching, discipling, counseling, giving biblical wisdom. If you're not training yourself on the ordinary means of grace perpetually, just take the word of God. Well, when the time comes to give the word, you're not going to be ready. And not only that, if you're not giving yourself to the ordinary means of grace, what's going to happen to your soul? You're going to be like someone... Like me, I'll say me, if I tried to go run a marathon right now. I mean, if you try to run a marathon without doing the appropriate training, you're not going to get very far. Uh, that sounds miserable to me. And I, you know, I wouldn't get far at all, neither would some of you. Some of you would maybe do all, well, I don't know. But the point is that if you're going to run a marathon, you've got to do the requisite training to perform. The athlete, the runner gets that. And this is what Paul is saying. You've got to conceive of yourself, Timothy, as an athlete here. You've got to be doing the requisite training so that you're in shape for the long haul of your ministry. And he goes on further, actually, in verse 5, to say that it actually, no matter how hard the athlete trains, at the end of the day, though, if he doesn't compete according to the rules, he doesn't win the prize. If he breaks the rules, he's disqualified. In fact, in the first century, not only would he be disqualified, but he would be publicly shamed and whipped and fined. So he needed to train hard to submit himself to the agony of training. And then also he had to submit to the agony of the rules that put boundaries on him, what he could and couldn't do. Now, of course, that's the word of God here. 
The Word of God is the rule book. And Timothy, if you're going to be the Lord's kind of man, you've got to compete and you've got to carry out your ministry at the highest level, which requires ordinary means of grace training. But you also have to do it according to what he says. You can't flex it. You can't bend it. You can't say, oh, I'm just tired. I'll just sort of, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll shirk my responsibility here or there. No. You've got to stay in your lane, Timothy. You've got to stay in your lane. You've got to run your race and you can't, try to cheat by stepping in the lane just a little bit and then get back into your lane to make up time. No, you've got to compete according to the rules. Now, there's much more I could say about that, but time is rapidly going away. Okay, so athlete, soldier, and then third, Timothy, if you're going to be faithful, you've got to conceive of yourself as a farmer. Farmer. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The emphasis here, of course, is on the phrase hardworking. In Greek, it's shifted. This word hardworking is kapiao, which means to toil intensely, to sweat, strain, to the point of exhaustion, if necessary. It's shifted all the way to the front of the sentence for emphasis. It speaks of strenuous toil, labor, difficulty. So clearly Paul is wanting to reshape Timothy's expectations to include the reality that the ministry God has given him to do would be marked by exertion and hard work. Which is exactly the opposite of what we want our ministries to be like. (laughs) Exertion, hard work, difficulty. We prefer instant godliness, instant change, but often slow progress is what we see. The metaphor then about the farmer, the work of the farmer is very apt for us. Let me give you a couple of sort of applications here in closing. My watch may be off. I have 11.14. 11.14, let the record show. Okay. First, the farmer's work is hard, but it's also monotonous. I'll give this to you really quickly. It's monotonous, and that's the world in which you and I live. We don't live in these high peaks of wonderful experiences. Most of what we do is in the valley of the mundane, day in, day out, doing what's not fun. That's what the farmer does over and over and over again. Timothy, I know it's monotonous. I know you feel like you're saying the same thing to the same people over and over again. But this is the world in which you live. This is life in a fallen world. People forget you have to say it over and over again. Monotony is normal. You have to be faithful in the monotonous. Because when you stand before God, most of what you give account for will be what you did with the mundane and monotonous of your life. Right? That's, that's Ecclesiastes 6.9. What the eye sees is better than what the heart desires. What he means by that is what's right in front of you is better than what you think will be coming. Because honestly, the only place you can be faithful is in, within what's right in front of you. The mundane, the difficult. Be faithful. So that's one application. Another application. Like the farmer, you must work hard even though you don't control the outcomes. You don't, you don't get to pick when it grows, when it doesn't grow, when the drought comes, when the bugs come. Who, who's in charge of all that? This is why Spurgeon said the sovereignty of God is the Christian's only pillow. It's, it's because over and over again we have to say God is in charge. We don't control outcomes. And much of our angst about ministry has to do with that tension. We want to control outcomes. We evaluate ourselves based on the outcomes. Right? The farmer doesn't do that. He does his job. He plows, he fertilizes, he sows, and he prays that God would send rain and bring growth. And let me give you a third thing. Like the farmer, you must work hard with your eye on the harvest. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. That's the harvest. You've got to transcend the mundane sometimes. You've got to transcend the lack of fruit in your ministry. And you've got to start looking ahead and saying, heaven will make amends for all. The harvest I may not see now, but I am storing up treasure in heaven where neither wrath nor moth can destroy. And though no one else sees the labor I'm doing, the Father who sees in secret will reward. 
right? Those are the kind of thoughts that the Christian has to entertain all the time. So if we want to be faithful to the Lord, we have to conceive our, of ourselves in these ways. Soldier, athlete, farmer. And then verse 7, let me finish up. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What that tells me is that it's th- this kind of mindset doesn't happen in a snap. God's not going to zap you and make you think of yourself as a farmer, athlete, soldier. God's not going to do that. What do you have to do? Verse 7, you've got to think over what Paul has just said. What that means is this verse, these realities should be in your back pocket. And you should be entertaining them, meditating, musing on these things all the time so that you can serve the Lord for the long haul. And that will keep you from really making shipwreck of your faith and being down and distraught, but full of courage and confidence in the Lord as you serve. All right? Let me pray for you guys, and then I'll dismiss you for lunch. Father, you are good and great. We thank you for your word. And our prayer, our one prayer, is that you would help us to walk out these wonderful truths that we see here. Help us all, Lord, to be strong in grace, do the work you've given us to do, live as an athlete, soldier, farmer, and be diligent as we consider your word and implement its principles. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.